Hi, and welcome to Being Lutheran, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ and the biblical theology expressed in the Lutheran Confessions. Today, Pastor Jason Goodham continues his interview with Artist Flame. Being Lutheran is sponsored by the Free Lutheran Bible College and Seminary. Whatever your vocation is, start here. Go anywhere grounded in God's Word. Welcome to the Being Lutheran podcast. I am once again, Pastor Jason Goodham, and I have back with me for a second segment, uh, artist, recording artist, Lutheran superstar, all around general good guy, Flame. Welcome back, Flame. Hey, glad to be here. I like the intro. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I always do my best to butter up my guests because it makes the interview go well. So I hope it works. <laughs> and it makes us feel good about ourselves. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, great, great. Um, so we had a pretty heavy conversation last time we talked, uh, a necessary conversation. And, and we're going to change things up a little bit. Not that our new topic is is light and unimportant. It's just an entirely different category and genre altogether. Uh, I'm curious about, I'm, I'm genuinely curious about this. What made you decide to record and release a rap album about Holy Communion? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that is so funny because I resisted this particular teaching uh, vehemently. So it's kind of funny that I have relaxed that within myself um, have yielded to the scriptures and church history and decided to, you know, talk about it in music. But honestly, it was uh, one of the sweetest doctrines that lifted my soul and um, has brought a joy, um, a rejuvenation and passion for my faith, unlike anything I've ever studied. So I had to follow up extra notes with this particular topic. Oh, that's fantastic. And in and I can say from the perspective of a pastor, and, and I hope I'm not overstating on this, but I, I think every single person I know personally who has come out of the Reformed wing of the church and into the Lutheran wing of the church, they have told me that this was the last wall to crumble, that their last hesitation was Holy Communion. And, and it seems like you bear that out too, right? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I fought tooth and nail against this reality uh, because it it was just the most awkward set of ideas coming from <laughs> the Reformed Baptist side of things. Not even the Presbyterian Calvinistic construct, which would have been probably a smoother transition, but mine was much more of an extreme um, sort of conversion, if you will, in my mind because everything is symbolic. So to go from that to where I am now, is it's a world unto itself of difference. And what that says to me as a lifelong Lutheran is that there's probably some work we have in talking about Holy Communion in a better way. Not necessarily in a different way, but it, it kind of seems to me from my perspective that we just throw out the terminology and let it stand instead of really interacting with people about the intricacies of what we believe and confess and why it's important. Yes, that would be amazing because, you know, when I talk to a lot of my Calvinistic friends, um, you know, I, I part of my point of discussion now is I believe what you're searching for in doctrines like 
irresistible grace, uh, particular uh, redemption. I think the assurance that you're searching for um, has been articulated for 15 plus hundred years. And you you found a version of it in those doctrines that doesn't deliver fully what you get with the reality of what's taking place at the Lord's table. Yeah. And you, and of course, you've got a whole track about that, right? The, the yes. 1500 years. Uh, so yes. just, just like we did last segment with Daybreak, we're going to do this with Christ for You, and we're going to go down track by track on this. Uh, All right. And so I'm going to do my best here again to not hose this up with things, but the opening line of the opening track, which is called Christ for You, uh, is I think it sets the tone for the entire rest of the album. So I'm going to play just that opening line, and then I want you to talk about why this was such an important introduction for you, okay? All right, let's do it. Maybe the reason you feel so empty is because you've reduced Christianity down to just a contemplative spirituality. What an opening line. My goodness, that is amazing. So why <laughs> is that an important starting point for you as you interact with others about Holy Communion? Yes, because a few things. So one, on a, you know, just a practical level, me observing friends and my inner circle and people close to it. That, that was a bit of a mass exodus away from Christianity in 2020. And uh, I think a lot had to do with the social climate. And I think a lot of it was people have just been exhausted with trying to please God and get him to accept them. Um, but they feel that it's nearly impossible. And people just sort of tap out and say, I'm done. And others who are um, looking for a deeper, closer connection to God, but Christianity has sort of been stripped of the sacred, if you will. Now it's more so just um, a, a contemplative spirituality where we reflect in our minds at every point. The sermon is about reflection. When we approach communion in just the generic American church, to use your term again. <laughs> there we go again. Um, Great. <laughs> right. You know, it's really just a time to, again, reflect on what Jesus did long ago. When you're trying to see if you're really in a faith, if you're really one of the elect, you're looking within and you're thinking about how good you behave. You're thinking about, is your doctrine and theology properly aligned and thought out? So there's so much going on in your headspace, so much reflection that I think it, 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 it has lost the mystery, the wonder of what Christianity entails that I think people end up tapping out. Great. Yeah, that's, you know, the, the contemplative spirituality. I mean, do you think at that root is kind of where the, and I can't even say it's the modern church of today, but kind of this, the modern spirit of people who would be inclined in that direction is, is the source of, uh, you know, this claim that I'm spiritual, but not religious? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. I think, um, you know, people have sort of settled for, you know, there's something out there. I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that. Um, but, you know, the things that are tied to traditional Christianity, the rites, the rituals, 
those types of things they see mostly in a negative light and they've settled for some version of spirituality that they believe is purer because it's it's very stripped down and bare bones um, and just some personal connection that, that they have with God or some type of energy out in the world. But that again, it's just, it's more internal focus, uh, mm-hmm. more individualistic. And I think it still leaves people with an emptiness. And I think it's unfortunate when the church um, really doubles down. And you think when you step into, say, a church building in the American context, mostly it's going to be a place that doesn't feel sacred. It uh, looks more like a concert hall. We don't want you to feel like there's something supernatural being discussed. We want you to be able to come in with your coffee and just feel like you're at any other type of place, you know? And I think, again, that sounds like a winner that the culture would be excited about, but I think people eventually feel that it's empty. And it makes you wonder how many people out there are either unwilling or incapable of distinguishing between Christianity on the one hand and maybe just a a general sense of mindfulness on the other. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good thought. So this is just me now because I have access to you as a fan. I I really want to know because I picked up on it anyway, but I don't know if that's where you're coming from. Part of the chorus for Christ for you is you, it's, I know you by name, right? You say that over and over and over again in the song. Is that an intentional reference or connection to baptism, or is that just kind of how the song shook itself up? No, it is. It's, it's certainly tied to baptism, you know. Yeah, for sure. You know, there's this, um, you know, uh, it's, it's an individual, individualistic, but also corporate, you know. So the Lord knows us personally. Um, he applies grace to us in, at, in baptism. Personally, uh, when we receive his body and blood at the Lord's table, it's for you, whoever you are, male, female in the world, right? So it's this uniquely personal application of God's grace that we are receiving, but it's also to us as a unit, as a body, as he brings us together through these, you know, through these sacraments, these external rites. And uh, so, yeah, you're, you're right to point that out. And I was hoping that you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, let me tell you, I, I've admitted multiple times on the podcast that I don't have a single creative bone in my body. Uh, <laughs> if people show me like visual art, you know, and they talk about the symbolism of this or that, and I look at it and I see a picture, right? Yeah. yeah. So when I can pick up on something symbolic and not obvious, I just, I, you know, I'm going to break my shoulder patting myself on the back. <laughs> so I'll, I'll take it. Uh, that makes As you me should. happy. <laughs> As you should. <laughs> uh, let's move on to track number two, That Long. And, and, and we kind of hinted at this at the beginning of this segment, but uh, was the historical argument that you make in this track, you know, the, the first 15, for 1,500 years, the doctrine of communion remained essentially unchanged. Was that particularly impactful to you in your understanding of Holy Communion and in your journey into Lutheranism? Yes, it was. It was because I had to wrestle with, am I going to contend for, to fight for a set of teachings that has been dear to me? And those teachings were, you know, uh, the tulip, 
because I would have considered myself a five-point Calvinist. Am I going to fight for the logical consistency of this set of teachings? Because in it, I found something that feels good, that works, that seems to be in the scriptures. Or am I going to yield to the evidence that I'm now seeing in the scriptures um, that the collective conscious of church history, by and large, has admitted those who are nearer to um, the original languages, to the apostles themselves, to Jesus himself? Um, am I going to yield to that in which I've discovered for 15 plus hundred years that seems to take me back to the apostles and Jesus and his words? Am I going to allow myself to go where the evidence leads or am I going to commit to my system? So the 1500 year sort of collective conscious of exegesis, way of interpreting the Bible, it, it really helped win my heart over, win my mind over and relax my resistance. Well, and, and it really creates for a jarring perspective on the entire theological process, if the dichotomy here is, if you believe that for centuries, the people who were most earnest and closest to the faith more or less got it right, or if your modern perspective of theology is that you or your denomination or your group has been sent to rescue the church from centuries of undetected or uncontested heresy. Mm. Wow. And, and wow. Th that really is drastic if you think about it like that. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And you think, and to think of, you know, sort of this alternative understanding of the Lord's table that emerged from Zwingli and then John Calvin, and you see it as a relatively young idea, uh, um, relatively new idea, you have to take that into consideration because, not to say that all things contemporary are bad or untrustworthy, but the point is um, we should be cautious when, uh, you know, Christians who love Jesus, who love the scriptures, uh, who have the same Holy Spirit as we do, seem to, for 1,500 years, understand Scripture a particular way, we should at least humble ourselves and take that seriously before dismissing it for a relatively new or even novel take on what the church has always held under extreme persecution and pressure, um, ideas from Greek culture that was pushing in uh, against Christianity. There was a fortification to stand firm and think rightly about the Lord's Supper made amongst, you know, their contemporary context. So that much vigor and intensity to maintain a purity of a doctrine has seemed to pass a 15-year test. I don't think it's right to ignore the, the weight of all of that for something that just seems to fit into my system um, that's relatively novel and contemporary. I think, you know, to our time, I think that's an unhealthy approach. Yeah, and I don't think the church of today really appreciates the significance of the reality that 500 years is a short amount of time for the existence of the church. Yes. Right? It, it, it's so hard for us to not believe that history didn't start in 2000 or in 2015 <laughs> or even in 2021. Yeah. And, and here we can realistically talk about the fact that 500 years is relatively short 
when it comes to the existence of the church and especially the existence of biblical teaching. Yes, yes. And that's very important because, you know, realizing that that is a relatively short amount of time um, and and sort of how we've inherited, you know, those who kind of come from the Reformation um, as has been called the Radical Reformation, maybe starting with Zwingli, um, that moves into, you know, John Calvin and others, those of us who were locked in on that paradigm, um, I think it's, it's healthy for us to use a collection of teachings that was before our personal bents, before we inherited the, the beef that Zwingli felt with Rome and the medieval Roman church, before we just so readily inherit John Calvin's take on things that was a critique of, you know, how he saw the medieval Roman Catholic Church. Before we sort of lean into that, let's see what Christians thought who didn't have those hangups, who didn't have that cultural um, reaction to things going on around them. They had different set of issues that they were dealing with, but they didn't have the same ones that Zwingli or Calvin had or that we even have in today's times. So it's healthy to see what minds thought that were clear that didn't have these same hangups and to see the consensus that the church had to me just speaks volumes and we should not ignore it. Yeah, I think it's one of the the more widespread misconceptions among Protestants today is that I think many aren't aware that Luther never intended to start a new denomination. He always considered what he taught to be in the thread of historic Christianity. Yes. Like, if we went back in time and asked Luther point blank, he would consider the Roman Catholic Church of his day to be the break-off sectarians, Mm. not the Lutherans. And I think for much of the rest of Protestantism for the last 500 years, it's built on a pattern of going back to Luther and said, well, he started something new. Why can't we also start something new? Wow, that's very helpful. Yes, we flipped it on his head and taken a permission, given ourselves permission to do something that was never a part of Luther's intentions. Correct. You know, yes, I love that. All right, track number three is uh, the upper room. And I, I say this with a little hesitation because you did actually write a song about the three genera, okay? And we're going to get there. But I think... Uh, this track on Christ for You has the most complex argument about Holy Communion on it. Mm. And and what you're talking about is, is you're integrating the broken body and the broken bread of Christ, or the broken bread and the broken body of Christ with prophecy. And, and what is the argument you're making in this track? Yes. So basically, the way I was taught coming up um, just as a Christian in America, um, at my time that I spent in the charismatic church, even when I moved to the you know Calvinistic side of things, I was taught that the bread represented Jesus's body. And um, the reason that that is so is because it's a visual of how Jesus's body was broken. So that sort of gives us the permission to um, think of the bread that way. What's the purpose? Why did Jesus use bread? Oh, 
because it's a way of showing how his body was broken for us. And, you know, when those ideas were challenged in my thinking, the thought was, yeah, but Jesus's body was never broken. There was no mm-hmm. bone broke. The, the, the Holy Spirit was intentional about noting that and, and, you know, recalling from Old Testament prophecy that no bone would be broken in his body. So how could this bread be for the sole purpose of showing Jesus's broken body? There's a, there's a category of mistakes. There's a, a grave inconsistency there that I had never been exposed to. And then I was left asking myself, well, what does this mean? How does this bread represent his body? And then you get a lot of creative answers that deviate from the scriptures when people are left to figure out, well, what does this represent? Yeah, that's great. And, you know, it kind of brings up the reality here that if you're going to take a symbolic understanding of Holy Communion and even of the sacraments in general, but especially of the Lord's Supper, those symbols ought to be consistent with what Scripture says, right? Yes. Otherwise, they're entirely yes. meaningless and there's no connection. No connection at all. And it's it's even inconsistent, even in a song I said, because um, we, we say, well, the wine represents the blood because it's red. And I say, but the bread color doesn't represent the body, you know, universally, right? So again, there you have to think through those inconsistencies because now if only the wine being red just shows, what's the same color as blood? Well, why isn't the same argument used for the color of the bread? Again, we just have some creative explanation of those things from people that want to say, oh, it's only a symbol. And it gets weird in terms of understanding those things. All right. Perfect segue for me. Speaking of things that are weird, uh, we, we, I would be remiss if we didn't share the first line of Passover lamb. Uh, uh, the, the, when, I, when you dropped the album uh, last year and I listened to it, I actually laughed out loud when I heard this. <laughs> and I was in a coffee shop. And I had at least three people look at me really weird. So uh, <laughs> this is great. We're going to share it. And then we're going to talk about it because it, it, it's really important too. All right, let's do it. So you jump from the Lord's Supper passage to the I am statements. That's weird. <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> I love that. Uh, so what are you setting up with that argument? <laughs> okay, so... When discussing these matters and looking at Jesus's words, he says, this is my body, that word is. So there's no reason to say that is does not mean is. Um, There's no metaphor communicated with the word is. Is always means is. In the upper room, as Jesus is, you know, celebrating this last supper with his disciples, there doesn't seem to be much follow up. Well, wait a minute, Jesus, what do you mean by it? Like, there doesn't seem to be any confusion as to what's being said um, in the scriptures. So when persons say, well, let's go to the I am statements. <laughs> yep. It's, it's, it's almost like changing the subject, you know, and it, it's like, well, why are you changing the subject? If we're talking about a literal statement, why are we now talking about a, a collection of scriptures that use some symbolism. 
So it's a huge leap that um, seems to, <laughs> on the face of it, go together. But in actuality, there are very different statements ta- taking place in both of those texts. Well, and, and your answer to that, I think, is brilliant. And, and at least in my mind, I kind of look at the track Passover Lamb as the flip side to the argument you have in Upper Rome, right? So yeah. in Upper Rome, you're saying your symbols aren't even consistent. And in Passover Lamb, you're, you're saying your syntax isn't consistent, that you're, you're using grammar in a different way. And the line that hits home uh, is that, yes, yes, they ate the lamb literally. <laughs> so, you know, even if you jump to the metaphorical argument against the Lutheran understanding of Holy Communion, you actually have to wrestle with, no, Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in fact, the Israelites of the Old Testament did literally eat the Lamb. Yes. Yes. You just have to pause. Selah. Let that statement sit, seriously, because... And, and, and that's the impact of good theology, right? There comes to an, a point where there's a terminus for the argument, and you just let it hang in the air, like you said. It just sits there. And turn that over in your mind, even if you agree with the statement. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. yeah. And, I, you know, and, and to me, that was pivotal, because coming from the standpoint of this is all only a metaphor, um, that the word is actually means represents. And when I was confronted with the weight of what was taking place at the Lord's table, this was actually on the day where the surrounding culture is celebrating the Passover meal. They're having a, you know, celebrating the Passover from the Old Testament. And Jesus is very intentional about having the Lord's Supper at this unique time period. And then he's also, you know, the the lamb who is given for the sins of the world. It's just, he's connecting so many dots. And then to to go from there to say the same way that they ate the Passover lamb to overcome, you know, this final plague, this curse of death, um, this sacrifice that was made, they ate the very lamb that was sacrificed. And now Jesus is saying, now this is my body. This is my blood. Oh my goodness. The connections are powerful. Um, they're intentional and they have deep implications for our benefit. He says, do this for the forgiveness of sins. Why would you fight this? Why would you resist this sweet mystery that breaks into our, you know, human condition and, and regularly, you know, the Lord brings us forgiveness afresh as we dine together as a body where we're united with the saints of old, um, the ones who are across the, you know, the globe. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is the social climate. We're still reminded that we're a family, though we may be struggling societally. We're still bound together at the Lord's table. You know, we bear one another's burdens because we're one body as we are being brought together. At You know, during this time, it's just a sweet doctrine that the Lord has. Uh, it's not even just a doctrine in some heady way, but it's you know, it's a teaching that is so real and practical. Um, I think we do well to to cherish it and to talk about it a lot more. Oh, that is that is a wonderful way to put it. And, and, and I think it's so useful. One of the ways 
I've used to teach about the significance of the sacraments in their uniqueness in my church is I point to Joshua and the battle of Jericho, right? Mm -hmm. And in the way you look at it, there's not a single military commander in the history of history that would think to use the tactic of marching around a city once for six days and then seven times on the last day, and that's how you're going to win the battle. (laughs) right? No one's going to do that. And yet God says it specifically and it accomplishes a great victory. Mm. And yet we read this and we, I mean, there isn't a VBS ever that won't take advantage of pointing to Joshua and Jericho. It's just one of those Sunday school lessons that we want to teach our kids. Yeah, And, And we don't have a problem with it, but suddenly the same God with the same directness says, you pour water over this baby's head and you eat this bread and wine because it's my body and blood. And that's a bridge too far for us. Mm. And the lack of consistency with our own understanding of scripture really does us in. Yeah, it does. It does. And you know, what I've been telling my friends who are giving me pushback is I believe you don't really dislike this doctrine. I just believe you don't understand it and you haven't heard it taught. Um, And you are only arguing from the standpoint of inherited disagreement. Hmm. But those disagreements, I don't believe you really have them personally because you're not as tied to the internal struggles that Zwingli himself was having and his followers, or John Calvin himself was having, and his followers. If you can hear afresh what the scripture says and remove yourself from inherited disagreement. That's a great term. Yeah, yeah. I believe you'll relax your resistance. Oh, great. All right, this this is the specific track I have been waiting to talk to you about for almost a year now. The, the three genera. Yeah. How on earth <laughs> did you manage to write a song about the three genera? I mean, this is the second time now in an hour that you've completely upended my seminary training, okay? Uh, <laughs> we learned about this in seminary, and then our prof in seminary says, now don't ever use these terms with the laity. <laughs> They're just for your benefit. <laughs> no one's going to hear me preaching about the, the gainus uh, idiomaticum, the gainus myostaticum, <laughs> and the gainus apostolomaticum. No one's going to, I mean, I'm not yeah. going to drop that. But, but here comes Flame, and he not only writes a rap song about it, but he makes it make sense for the Christian life. So one, well done, and now tell me, how did you do it? <laughs> <laughs> well, one, thank you so much. You know, it was, it's, there are three different categories. I said, this is perfect for a rap song, three verses. <laughs> <laughs> so it almost wrote itself. I was like, okay, this is great. But, um, you know, one of the things for me was understanding that my Christology was uniquely Calvinistic. And um, I hadn't thought much about it, but that was a part of the reason why I was resisting the teaching that is, you know, so clearly taught 
once you reapproach the scriptures about the Lord's Supper, I didn't realize that my Christology being so Calvinistic was, was making it difficult for me to accept Jesus's words. So for example, um, John Calvin has a mantra that he sort of gets from Zwingli, which says that the finite yeah. is not capable of the infinite, right? So I guess he's trying to do good theology and uphold that Jesus is truly man. And that's to be appreciated. You know, we should value highly um, this revelation of Jesus's own humanity. Um, but he sort of, you know, goes too far and things like this. So in his institutes, there's um, a time where he talks about when Jesus walks on water, um, he actually changes the nature of the water to make it walkable. <laughs> right. So, you know, because That's he's trying to ice. be consistent. <laughs> right. We're basically ice. Right. So he's trying to be consistent because humans cannot walk on water. Physical bodies cannot walk on water. And he does the same thing when Jesus you know, comes through the wall or through the door or whatever without, you know, sort of, the scripture sort of alludes to maybe he walked through the door or the wall. And Calvin is saying, well, you know, clearly he came in some other way because he's trying to be consistent and uphold, you know, Jesus's true humanity. And I didn't realize that, you know, my sort of fortification in Jesus's humanity and what he can and can't do in his body was rooted in my Christology. So this song and the teachings of the three gainer uh, helped break me out of that to, you know, give me permission to receive the Lord's uh, body and blood. It, what you talk about here, then, it's right out of the formula of Concord, isn't it? It's back-to-back uh, yes. -back articles and formula, and, and this is a major weakness on my, I get the numbering screwed up all the time. But there's an article on the Lord's Supper, and the very next article is about the two natures of Christ. And in yes. what the, the writers of the formula do is they say these are connected. You're not going to get the Lord's Supper right unless you understand or confess the two natures of Christ appropriately. Yes, yes, yep. I believe it's article uh, eight and nine. Yeah, it's, it was, I was going to say it's either eight or nine, and nine or nine and ten. I think you're right on that. But it's, I mean, it, yeah. it's, there's direct applicability there. That, you know, yes. and, and it kind of leads into what we've been talking about this whole time. There's probably not a lot of people that would disagree with what Lutherans confess about Holy Communion if they would think better about the person and nature of Christ. Yes, very much so. Very much so. I agree. All right, and one last question with the three genera, uh, just so you get a chance, you don't describe it in your uh, in the song, but for everyone listening, who is Leo Sanchez? <laughs> okay, so you know, uh, Doctor Sanchez uh, Leopoldo, I believe is the correct uh, and full pronunciation of his first name, but he's a professor of systematic theology um, at Concordia Seminary, the school I graduated from. Um, he's also the director of the Center of Hispanic Studies, uh, Ministerial Formation, and he's just a, a, a down-to-earth, brilliant thinker, teacher, communicator, and is one of the professors that um, I had a chance to sit in on a class with before I even became a student at Concordia. And, um, and then later, as I was working through my um, 
you know, my master's degree, I was able to sit with him and hone in on my understanding of Christology. And he was the one that showed, really helped show me my uh, Calvinistic training and how it was sort of uh, hindering me from understanding Christ more fully. So I had some personal one-on-one time with him to talk and think deeply about these things. So I'm forever in his gratitude for helping me, you know, work through my own Christology and my own training. Again, they gave my soul permission to receive the Lord's body and blood through bread and wine. Um, yeah, so I can access more joy and freedom in the gospel. That's that's great. And I mean, it's, it's wonderful to go through our Christian lives having those mentors uh, or those people who kind of jump into our lives and sort things out for us. Yes, truly, truly. Big hat tip to Dr. Sanchez. Yes. Good. Uh, final track in, in kind of the final topic for us today, you have Sounds Crazy. And a line from that is, sometimes we forget how crazy our faith is. Yeah. So my question to you with that is, do you... Uh, as an artist and as a Christian, do you kind of see Christ for you as a companion album to Extra Nose? Yes. So with Extra Nose, I was using, you know, the Luther's teaching on justification mm-hmm. um, as a as a springboard to discuss what God does outside of ourselves. So, you know, extra notes outside of ourselves. And, and, I, and I think that approach was helpful because a lot of people already are pretty comfortable admitting or seeing in the scriptures that we're justified by faith alone. And, um, but one of the things I wanted to do was to connect the dots because in the Reformed Baptist and Calvinistic world, they do uphold the solas. You know, they'll they'll champion the five solas and, you know, they'll talk about, you know, faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, Christ alone, and God's glory. Like they'll they'll champion those solas, but they've extracted the 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 teaching of baptism and the Lord's Supper from Luther's solas. They removed <laughs> The cultural, the, the cultural context in which Luther was arguing justification by faith alone, or the theological context, he he didn't remove the reality of what's taking place um, through mere water and God's word and baptism. He didn't remove the reality of what's taking place through regular bread and regular wine and, and Jesus being bodily present. He didn't dismiss those teachings to uphold the teaching of justification by faith alone. They went together um, because, you know, in baptism, God is applying the grace that was earned on the cross. At the Lord's table, God is afresh, you know, meeting us and bringing forgiveness and and bringing us this unity. So those things are not removed from the the confession that you'll hear in the reform circle. So I felt like I wanted people to know that because they think this is a threat to justification by faith alone. They think we're saying that we're adding to salvation. Well, they think that we're saying baptism is a work or the Lord's Supper is a work. It's something that, um, you know, because of their understanding of those teachings. And I'm saying, no, you have the concept flipped on its head. It's not us doing anything in baptism, like our first act of obedience 
right? Or, you know, some, you know, outward sign of an inward expression. Um, it's actually God who is baptizing us. It's actually Christ who is coming to us at the Lord's table. Um, and these things belong hand in hand with justification by faith. So I wanted these two projects to show that uh, these are complementary teachings that serve us along the, the this Christian journey and they don't compete. It's not, um, you know, contrary to one another. Well, that's, that's great. That makes for a great summary. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, what is next for Flame? You're touring this summer, right? Yes, I am touring this summer with um, my friend, uh, The Truth and I. We have a podcast, uh, Complicated-ish, where we um, you know, just talk about fun things. So we're touring. I'm doing a lot of spot dates. I'm also working on the next installment of the Extranos series. So you have Extranos Christ for you. And uh, so you probably can imagine what this next one will be. Um, So I'll give you some exclusive here on the Being Lutheran podcast. I am working on the baptism baptism project. (laughs) I love it. Awesome. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So I'm in the studio right now writing and thinking. And so, yeah, I'm excited. Great. That is terrific news. I encourage everyone uh, to check out Flames Music. If you haven't already, I'm sure most of our listeners already have. It's available uh, pretty much anywhere you can find music. Support Flame, buy his album, listen to his stuff as frequently as you can. And again, once again, Flame, thanks for coming back onto the Being Lutheran podcast. Yes, thanks for having me. I'm always listening to you all's every installment. So thank you for your service and your vocation as well. I really appreciate it. Uh, We appreciate that too. All right, we'll talk to you later. Thank you for joining us. Please look us up on the web at beinglutheran.com. Also invite a friend to check us out on Spotify and iTunes. For the latest from the Free Lutheran Bible College and Seminary in Plymouth, Minnesota, visit flbc.edu.